New York, this is Democracy Now! They want to prevent us from filming home demolitions, from the night invasions that they do to the Palestinian houses, from cutting water pipes, from demolishing the schools. They don't want the international community, the people abroad, to see the truth, to see our, our footage. So for that, we are being targeted as Palestinian journalists and activists on the ground. As Israeli President Isaac Herzog meets President Biden at the White House and prepares to address a joint session of Congress, we'll go to the occupied West Bank to talk to Palestinian journalist Basil Adra. On Saturday, Israeli forces handcuffed and blindfolded him, forcing him to sit in the blazing sun for hours after he refused to hand over footage of an Israeli settler attack. We'll also speak with Palestinian human rights attorney Noura Arakat. Then to labor, power, and strategy. What happens here is important because what's happening to us is happening across all fields of labor by means of when employers make Wall Street and greed their priority and they forget about the essential contributors that make the machine run. 160,000 actors enter their fifth day on strike, joining tens of thousands of screenwriters who've been on strike since May. This all comes as UPS workers are preparing for what could be the second largest strike at a single employer in U.S. history. We'll speak with the legendary historian of the Mexican Revolution, labor organizer and professor John Womack, about how to seize and build labor power and solidarity. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations has warned Russia's decision to terminate the Black Sea grain deal, which allowed for the safe export of food and fertilizer from Ukrainian ports, will lead to soaring food prices and worsening hunger across the globe. The U.N. Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, spoke Monday after the Kremlin said it would refuse to extend the agreement. Ultimately, participation in these agreements is a choice. But struggling people everywhere and developing countries don't have a choice. Hundreds of millions of people face hunger and consumers are confronting a global cost of living crisis. And they will pay the price. This comes just a week after Russia vetoed the extension of a key U.N. humanitarian aid delivery route from Turkey into Syria. On Monday, the U.N. rejected restrictions placed by the Syrian government on life-saving deliveries through the Baba Hawa border crossing. Syrian officials conditioned the shipments on the U.N.'s full cooperation and coordination with Syria's government, among other rules denounced by U.N. officials as unacceptable. Russia's military launched an early-morning drone and missile attack on the Ukrainian port city of Odessa, a day after the Kremlin walked away from the Black Sea Agreement. Ukraine's military says one person was injured by debris after it shot down all six missiles and 25 drones fired at Odessa. The attack came just hours after Russian President Putin accused Ukraine of launching what he called a cruel and senseless attack Monday on a key bridge connecting the Russian mainland to the Russian the next Crimean Peninsula. What has happened is yet another terrorist act by the regime in Kyiv. 
This crime is senseless from a military standpoint because the Crimean bridge has not been used for military logistics for a long time. It is also cruelty because innocent civilians have been killed. Of course, there will be a response from the Russian side. In Belarus, a large convoy of Wagner mercenary forces arrived at a military field camp Monday, the first redeployment of the mercenary group's fighters since their failed mutiny in late June. On Friday, the Belarus Ministry of Defense said Wagner troops are training some of its security forces. Tens of thousands of people in Vietnam and southern China evacuated their homes as Typhoon Talim made landfall in China's Guangdong province. The storm brought heavy winds and rain, forcing the cancellation of hundreds of trains and flights. Its arrival came as China, like much of the northern hemisphere, saw temperature records shattered by unrelenting summer heat. Here in the United States, more than 88 million people are under excessive heat warnings and advisories again today. Smoke from hundreds of Canadian wildfires is triggering unhealthy air quality alerts across New England and as far south as Atlanta, Georgia, and Birmingham, Alabama. Today, Phoenix, Arizona is forecast to record its 18th consecutive day of over 110 degrees Fahrenheit with no respite in sight. A recent study found a loss of the power grid in Phoenix during a heat wave would cause at least 12,000 deaths, with hundreds of thousands more needing treatment for heat-related illnesses. White House climate envoy John Kerry is in Beijing to reestablish discussions on the climate crisis between the U.S. and China, the world's two largest emitters of greenhouse gases. Kerry arrived in Beijing Sunday as a weather station in western China logged an all-time high-temperature record of 126 degrees Fahrenheit. Kerry's visit came just days after he ruled out reparations to other countries harmed by the climate crisis. Kerry made the remark during testimony last Thursday at a House Foreign Affairs subcommittee hearing as he was questioned by Republican Congressmember Brian Mast of Florida. Are you planning to commit America to climate reparations? That is to say, we have to pay some other country because they had a flood or they had a hurricane or a typhoon no, or a wildfire? under no circumstances. Very good. I'm glad to hear you say that. Those remarks were condemned by climate action groups, including 350.org, which said in a statement, quote, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry's words are just the latest example of Kerry and the U.S. refusing to back up their vague claims for U.S. support in global climate progress with real substantive action, they said. A ship dispatched by the United Nations has arrived off the coast of Yemen to begin pumping over a million barrels of oil from a decaying supertanker anchored in the Red Sea. The ship was abandoned off the coast of Yemen in 2015 at the start of the U.S.-backed Saudi-led war against Houthi rebels. It contains four times the amount of oil spilled off the coast of Alaska during 1989's Exxon Valdez disaster. On Monday, U.N. humanitarian coordinator David Gressley said engineers had secured the rusting ship against a potential catastrophic spill or explosion. The structure of the FSO software, even though it is a decaying vessel, the hull is still very secure, which means uh, that the transfer of the oil will be relatively low risk. In Iowa, abortions at up to 20 weeks of pregnancy are once again legal after a district judge put Iowa's strict six-week abortion ban on hold. Polk County Judge Joseph Seidlin said Monday Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and other plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits of their lawsuit, which contends the bill signed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds Friday violates Iowa's Constitution. Fourteen states currently have abortion bans in effect after the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade last summer. 
Here in New York, pressures mounting for the federal government to take over the troubled Rikers Island jail complex. Manhattan U.S. Attorney Damian Williams Monday said the crisis at Rikers is, quote, a collective failure with deep roots spanning multiple mayoral administrations. Eight years ago, New York City agreed to a multimillion-dollar effort to reform Rikers, but conditions have only worsened, leading to the deaths of several prisoners and growing reports of brutal violence and inhumane treatment. Meanwhile, Mayor Eric Adams has appointed new leadership to the New York Police Department. Edward Caban will be the first Latino to serve as NYPD commissioner. His rise to power comes after the abrupt departure of the former commissioner, Kichan Sewell, who was the first black woman in the role. Caban spoke alongside Mayor Adams at City Hall Monday. Now, it's not lost on me that today's announcement is also a first, given how many great leaders of Hispanic descent have come before me in the NYPD to be the first Hispanic police commissioner is an honor of the highest measure. In medical news, an experimental new drug called Denanumab has slowed the progression of Alzheimer's disease in patients by about 35 percent when used in the early stages of the disease. That makes the drug at least as effective as Lakembi, another monoclonal antibody treatment against Alzheimer's that won FDA approval earlier this month. Drug maker Eli Lilly hasn't said how much Denanumab will cost if it wins regulatory approval, but a year's treatment of Lakembi has been priced at more than twenty. $6,000 in the United States. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has been condemned for racist and anti-Semitic remarks after he said COVID-19 was targeted to certain ethnicities. RFK Jr. was making the comments while speaking at a dinner in Manhattan last week. A recording was published by The New York Post. COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and, uh, and, uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said. On Monday, his sister, Carrie Kennedy, who heads the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization, strongly condemned what she called her brother's deplorable and untruthful remarks. She said, quote, his statements do not represent what I believe or what Robert F. Kennedy human rights stand for with our 50-plus year track record of protecting rights and standing against racism and all forms of discrimination, Quote. Rolling Stone reports that RFK Jr., who's running for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, has been raking in cash from dozens of major Republican donors. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has fueled speculation. He will run as a third-party candidate in the 2024 presidential election. Manchin appeared alongside Republican former Utah Governor John Huntsman at an event in New Hampshire Monday, arguing U.S. voters are frustrated by the growing divide between the two major political parties. I'm not here running for president tonight. I'm not. I'm here trying to basically save the nation. Senator Manchin is the biggest recipient of fossil fuel money in Congress. Monday's event was organized by the billionaire-backed organization No Labels, which is exploring whether to run a third-party candidate for president. The Progressive Change Campaign Committee wrote on social media, quote, No Labels is nothing more than a Republican front group. They're staffed by Republicans, bankrolled by Republicans, and their third-party gambit will only help elect MAGA Republicans like Trump. Joe Manchin just gives them the patina of bipartisanship, they said. 
The shipping giant UPS has begun training non-union employees to fill in for unionized workers after the Teamsters voted to authorize a strike over stalled contract talks. Unless there's a breakthrough, some 340,000 UPS workers could be on picket lines as soon as August 1st. Over the weekend, New York Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined other New York lawmakers at a Teamsters rally, pledging support for what could become the largest single-employer strike in U.S. history. What we are about to step into requires solidarity from everybody, everybody across the city, across this country, across politics, across union, across workers, because your fight right here is about being the tip of the spear for dignity for every worker in this country, every worker in this country. Later in the broadcast, we'll speak with the legendary historian of the Mexican Revolution and labor organizer, Professor John Womack, Jr., about building labor power and solidarity. And the Reverend Jesse Jackson stepping down as president of the Rainbow Push Coalition, the civil rights group he founded in 1996. Reverend Jackson's legacy of activism was honored at the coalition's annual convention in Chicago over the weekend, with Vice President Kamala Harris and other prominent Democrats in attendance. In her remarks, Harris described Jackson as, quote, one of America's greatest patriots, someone who deeply believes in the promise of our country, unquote. The Rainbow Push Coalition will now be headed by the Reverend Frederick Douglass Haynes III. He spoke at the event Sunday. The Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson, Sr. I stand here on his shoulders because no one with sense would try to stand in his shoes. His shoes are too large. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we go to the occupied West Bank, as Israeli President Isaac Herzog is in Washington to meet President Biden and address a joint session of Congress. Back in 30 seconds. من يوم موعيت وأنا بنت هاي البلاد بكاء أطفال وبسمة ولاد الأرض صبها أسود خيم علينا حداد بطلنا نعد أحياء صرنا نعد أموات وأنا بقول بكفي عاد بدي أمسك قدري بكفي بكفي عاد by Mesa Dahl. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. President Biden's meeting Israeli President Isaac Herzog at the White House today. On Wednesday, Herzog will address a joint session of Congress, though several progressive Democrats have announced plans to boycott his speech. The group includes Congress members Rashida Tlaib, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Cory Bush, Ilhan Omar, and Jamal Bowman. Cory Bush wrote, the Israeli government's responsible for enforcing an, anti an apartheid state and rampantly abusing the rights of Palestinians. Congress should not be giving a platform to the president of a country that shows no respect for human rights, I will not be attending his joint address, unquote. 
On Monday, President Biden spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and invited him for a meeting in the United States this year. Biden recently criticized the makeup of Netanyahu's far-right cabinet, describing it as, quote, one of the most extremist he's ever seen in Israel. Israeli President Herzog's visit to the White House comes just weeks after the Israeli military attacked the Janine refugee camp, killing at least 12 Palestinians in Israel's largest military operation in the occupied West Bank in 20 years. We begin today's show with Noura Erekat. She's a Palestinian human rights attorney and associate professor at Rutgers University. She's author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Let's begin with Herzog's visit, the Israeli president to Biden, the address, joint session of Congress. And then yesterday, President Biden speaking personally on the phone with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, inviting him to the United States. Your response, Nora Erekat. So let's just begin by setting up the context that this is 2023 in the aftermath of the legacy human rights organizations, Israeli human rights organizations, UN committees, UN agencies, as well as multiple scholars and independent investigations have all concluded that Israel oversees an apartheid regime. This is also in a context where, since the collapse of the peace process in 2000, Israel has made clear that there will be no Palestinian state. There will be no such thing as binationalism, that they will in, 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 uh, uh, catalyze and enhance their takeover of Palestinian lands and their removal. They will they have shifted from occupation to warfare. This is a completely different universe than the one existed in 2000. And yet the rhetoric and the feedback surrounding Isaac Herzog's uh, invitation and speech is one that completely ignores all of that. So it's important to emphasize that this this effort within Congress, specifically among a mainstream democratic um, uh, element, is meant to normalize apartheid. It's not just saying that they want to defend Israel. They are saying that if this is in fact apartheid, as all of these luminaries and experts have concluded, then in this case, it's okay, it should be an exception, and it should be exemplary for others to follow. And so I applaud the progressive members of Congress who are skipping this address. I encourage other members of Congress to do the same and continue, continue to build the momentum amongst a progressive base that sees Palestine squarely within a social justice agenda. This is already manifest in social justice movements, such as Black Palestinian transnational solidarity that has centered, that this is a joint struggle that has endorsed BDS and that, in fact, catapulted many of these progressive Democrats into office. This is also evident amongst the Democrats themselves. Not only has Israel become a bipartisan issue, but for the first time ever, more Palestinian, more Amer Democrats sympathize with Palestinians than they do with Israelis, according to a 2023 Gallup poll. Continue to build that momentum. Resist this movement to normalize apartheid, what the members of Congress are doing with the invitation, what they did in response to Representative Jayapal's very accurate statement that Israel is a racist state is uh, akin to gaslighting, for lack of a better word, but really is normalization that is responding to the fact that they have lost the battle on the grassroots level and are trying to stem from the top down what they couldn't defeat from the bottom up. 
And we see this not only in this normalization, but we also see it in the passage of anti-BDS resolutions, as well as the adoption of the Israel Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition that wants to equate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. Nora, I wanted to play the clip you were just referring to, to the Progressive Caucus chair, Congressmember Pramila Jayapal, who made headlines this weekend after she called Israel a racist state while speaking at the Netroots Nation conference in Chicago Saturday. I want you to know that we have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state, that the Palestinian people deserve self-determination and autonomy, that the dream that the dream of a two-state solution is slipping away from us. After facing criticism, Congressmember Jayapal later clarified her comments, writing, quote, I do not believe the idea of Israel as a nation is racist. I do, however, believe that Netanyahu's extreme right-wing government has engaged in discriminatory and outright racist policies, and that there are extreme racists driving that policy within the leadership of the current government. We know that the status quo is unacceptable, untenable and unjust, Pramila Jayapal said. Your response to that, Nora Arakat? One, I want to point out that nothing that she said was controversial. If, if uh, Representative Jayapal is wrong, then so are all the experts and the advocates that study this issue and that apply it across the globe. So the attack on her is actually a bullying and harassment attack that is meant to scare everyone else from even having a conversation and acknowledging this reality on the ground and, most importantly, taking responsibility for it. The United States is not just a bystander here. The United States is complicit and a pillar of Israeli apartheid in its provision on unequivocal financial, diplomatic, and military support that, but for that support, Israel could not sustain this regime, which is not surprising, which is not surprising at all, because the U.S. was the last pillar to fall, the last domino to fall in sustaining apartheid in South Africa, where it had to fall in line with everyone else. But during apartheid South Africa and the international campaign against it during that regime's tenure, the United States issued the most vetoes within the Security Council to protect apartheid there, just um, to protect apartheid in Namibia and South Africa. And here we're seeing a similar pattern. As to the way that Representative Jayapal uh, uh, amended her statement, note that she didn't walk it back. She didn't say that Israel is a racist state. She wanted to make a distinction between Israeli people and the Israeli government. But what we need to understand here, and this is important for the audience to know, that she used the term Israeli nation. And there is no such thing as an Israeli national within Israel's law. And this is the crux of the matter. Israel bifurcates Jewish nationality from Israeli citizens so that it can flow all of the possessory rights to land, to employment, to housing, to the right to life through Jewish nationality in a way that it's extraterritorialized. So that a pubescent Jewish teen who doesn't even know where Israel is on the map ostensibly has more claims than a Palestinian grandma who is 80 years old, who was born before the state of Israel was established in 1948, has to those rights. Under any situation, we would decry the system as being discriminatory, contravening liberal norms of democracy. But in this situation, the international community, specifically the United States and Western governments, want to insist that this exception is acceptable and exemplary. And what I want to emphasize is that it actually is not just harmful to Palestinians, as evidenced by the systematic 
killing of Palestinians, the removal and the harm inflicted upon them, but that these ideas are not contained just to Israel-Palestine, but in fact are exported. These ideas of what sovereignty should look like are exported across the world. We see it embodied by the Hindutva movement in India and its reigning government. We also see it embodied even um, in the United States by European supremacists such as Richard Spencer, who says that he envisions that the future of European sovereignty should be modeled upon Israel's model of sovereignty. These ideas are dangerous. And it's not that we want to make an exception here. We want to actually make it clear that there should be no situation where states are not states that belong to everybody who is there, and rather than uh, to, to a nationality that exists extraterritorially. And, and Nora, Eric, I wanted to ask you, uh, the, the President Biden's announcement that he has invited a uh, a Prime Minister Netanyahu to also to visit the United States after months of saying that he had no plans to do so, especially in light of the enormous settlement expansion that the Netanyahu government has been involved in. I think the group, the watchdog group Peace Now, has said that 12,800 settlements across the West Bank been established since January. Uh, by the Netanyahu government, your response to this, uh, the the Biden uh, the Biden presidency just saying, well, we're we're inviting Netanyahu to come to the U.S. again. Um, listen, the thirteen thousand some settlements are just the tip of the iceberg. Israel has actually transferred authority of the West Bank from military uh, supervision to civilian oversight. They've basically taken the fig leaf off that this is not a temporary situation, but that this is a permanent condition, and they're planning for annexation. This contravenes the diplomatic consensus on the two-state solution, which is fraught on its own. And But even more than that, this contravenes the, even the U.S. and this U.S. administration, specifically the Biden administration. They didn't want to invite Netanyahu, not just because of his contravention um, and violations against Palestinians. I think that that would be um, quite ambitious on our part. But in fact, it was Netanyahu who undermined a sitting president in trying to establish Iranian new uh, rapprochement. It was Netanyahu who came to Congress to address a joint session to actually torpedo President Obama's attempt to establish an Iran nuclear agreement and received several standing ovations. This is the Biden administration's legacy. So the fact that not only has this been um, overturned, but now they're going to invite Netanyahu nevertheless without stepping back any of those um, missteps, any of that betrayal is an about face and says a lot about the Democratic administration and where Israel fits, where in, 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 as far as the United States is concerned, they've thrown up their hands that they will continue to provide unequivocal support and place absolutely no conditions on Israel's behavior, on Israel's participation, even in furtherance of the U.S.'s national interests in the region. In addition to human rights lawyer Nora Arakat, we're joined in the occupied West Bank by the Palestinian journalist Basaladra, who writes for 972. He spent years documenting Israeli efforts to evict Palestinians living in Masafriyata, south of Hebron. He wrote the new cover story for The Nation magazine, headlined, The Destruction of This Palestinian Community Was Green-Lighted by Israel's Supreme Court. On Saturday, he was detained while covering an Israeli settler attack at Masafariyata. After he refused to hand over his video footage, Israeli soldiers handcuffed 
and blindfolded him, then sat him in a chair in the blazing sun for hours. The Union of Journalists in Israel denounced Basel's detention, describing it as a, quote, serious violation of freedom of the press. Basel Adra joins us now from South Hebron. Um, Basel, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you describe exactly what took place on Saturday? I don't hear you if you're speaking. Thank you. Sorry for this. Uh, on Saturday, I got a call from a Palestinian shepherd and a neighbor that the settlers invading his uh, his field was armed settlers and with the, with their sheep in a Palestinian special property grazing there. As this is the recent policy of the settlers, where they come over and attack Palestinians in their fields and taking of the private properties, and this is the policy of the Israeli state recently by supporting these settlers attacking more Palestinians and taking more land and creating more new outposts and uh, farms in Palestinian fields and the Palestinian agricultural fields. So I was filming there. Later on arrived the police and, uh, and the Israeli occupation army. They invading houses in my village. They tried to arrest uh, people under the claim that the settlers said that their Palestinians were throwing stones at them. So soldiers went directly invading some houses, beating up people and and try to arrest them. And then an officer headed to me and said, give me your ID and your phone. And they searched my body and he told me, you, you need to open your phone. I told him this is illegal. There is a rules for this. I'm a journalist and here my card. There is the police is just here. They didn't ask me anything for, for this. And he said, no, uh, you should give, you should open your phone now and be released. Or there is another long way to get the videos from you. And he didn't like uh, say what is the long way. So minutes after that, he called like another group of soldiers who came in another jeep and asked them to take me away. So directly they took me behind their jeep. The settlers were there and started like the settlers them, them, themselves like cursing me while the soldiers were handcuffed me and covering my eyes before put me in the, inside the jeep and start driving away. Uh, I, I couldn't see, I couldn't know where I'm going. And then in the way they stopped and they transferred like me in another soldier's uh, car and also kept driving until we arrived in, an, in, a, in a place which is their military military base. And like they took me down from their car, started pushing me hardly. I was trying to ask them where, where they're going with me, what they're doing. I can't see why you are pushing me like this. I don't see where I am walking, where, where I'm putting my legs. And they just keep telling me to shut up and uh, cursing me that I'm a dog and I, I, they know who I am because I film them like uh, all the time when they come to destroy houses, when they are coming like to back the, the settlers and when they also come to invade the villages in the night or in the day. So there, there is really the, the scary thing for me that, they, they, the, that there is a hate and I'm a Barcelona journalist and there is a hate from them toward me just because I, I take my phone or my camera and go film them when they are doing like these crimes because they know that they are doing something they don't want it to be published outside. So they, they let me sit in a chair. Uh, I tried to ask them where I am, what is going on with me. They asked me about my phone while my phone was with the officer and my ID also. And they kept like telling me that I'm a liar and uh, that I am bad. And this like why you are not going to Janine. Well, I feel I'm writing to Al Jazeera. Uh, and then 
that I stayed there for for hours before the officer came again and put me in the in in the in the jeep and then take me to the entrance of the village, release me with my phone. Later on, the army spokesperson said I was taken to police to give a testimony. I was not detained, which is really totally lie. They took my phone illegally. I don't know what they did with it. And I was just sitting in the sun being cursed by these occupation soldiers uh, who's for them. It's really fun like to do that. I was asking them, you would never, I was telling them, you would never ever be brave to do this to an international or Israeli journalist. I don't wish that, but this is, will never happen here. Just because I'm a Palestinian, it doesn't matter journalist, Palestinian shepherd, Palestinian farmer, uh, a landowner, doesn't matter, I am Palestinian at the end of the day, and there is a foreign army, which is the Israeli occupation forces that controls our life and can do whatever they want because they, they have the power to do it. And this is not the first time for me personally to face this. Just last May, I was beaten up for, for like 40 minutes, really assaulted very hardly. It was filmed on a video when they were beating me up just because I reached uh, my neighbor to film the four soldiers trying to take down his shelter. And they decided to arrest me in that moment. I was like protesting, telling them, this is illegal. You don't have excuse. I am a journalist. Just come here to for documentation. And it was like just masked soldiers who with the ruffles and uniform and beating me really hard, grabbing me on the ground, like putting my body on the ground, catching my legs and my hands, try to grab me to, the, to their military jeep. I was too scared for that and I was like hospitalized after 40 minutes of them beating me up. And also like if you want another example about me personally, like on December 2021 at night, they invaded my home. They confiscated the cameras and the laptop and the car that I use alongside with other activists here for the documentation in Masafariyat and the police and the army kept them for for at least one month in their offices before the court ordered them to bring this back. But for now, like four Palestinian journalists sitting in an Israeli jail in administrative detention without any charge, without any accuse, just because they are Palestinians. We don't see the European Union, the U.S. sending condemnations about these acts, that journalists sitting in jail without charge, just because they are Palestinians. And what is the freedom of press? Last month, just in June, my, my friend and close colleague, uh, Ihab Alami, for example, from Beit Omar, Netherlands of Hebrew, of Hebron, was shot in his leg by an Israeli soldier when the soldiers were invading his town and he was filming them. The, the camera were there, uh, very clear that he's a journalist. He was wearing a vest, say, like telling that he's the, it's a press, like he's a journalist. And even though they shot him, no one talked about this. No one wrote about it. You don't see the the, the, the Western like embassies here in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv writing about it that there was a journalist like was shot unless like someone like Shirina Bakli that he, we love her so much that we shot in Jenin because she's a woman, she has American passport, then everyone talk about her. But this daily harassments and like this is just, I was like detained for two hours and 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 sit up under the sun, but all the all of the all the time I go out in the field, they try to push me back really hardly. They create flying checkpoints to stop us as journalists and taking our IDs, wasting our time to prevent us follow the forces that, for example, demolishing a home or cutting a water well in Masafriyata. So this is we've been like really we're really tired and risk you our life to go. 
film these these crimes and they, they are really making it very hard for us to do this and it doesn't matter for them what a price we will pay for this because they know that they, there is no consequences for the for their acts and their violence toward us and Basil Adra, I wanted to ask you, uh, obviously, this crackdown of the government, continued crackdown on uh, Palestinian journalists is as a result of what the Israeli government is doing and what you are chronicling. Could you talk about the uh, you report that over a thousand people are at risk of immediate banishment and, and the army has already started demolishing homes and schools to make way for more settlements. Could you talk about what you've seen? In the uh, uh, in these demolitions, yes. So, for me personally, since I born until today, I I witnessed and I document hundreds of, of demolitions of Palestinian houses and the properties in Masafiriyata, and it's the most hard thing to to see and to witness. And especially now, when I go to film this, I see families, childrens, like and and mothers stand aside and watching Israeli bulldozers demolishing their homes or their school or their their water well and they are just crying and I'm there just filming, feeling really powerless and hopeless on this situation. And just a few hundred meters away from from my home and my community, there is a, the Israeli outpost and settlement that keep, keep expanding. What I've seen since I born until today, just the Israeli settlements are expanding. They're getting water, a clean water and asphalt roads and homes every day they are building and expanding more and more on our land and the bulldozers there for them just come to dig the land and to create more houses and farms huge cow farms chicken farms uh, vineyard and cherries all all kind of farms around these settlements are expanding toward our land while i see and i witness a weekly of israeli bulldozers coming toward Masafiriyata to our communities and demolishing houses, schools, water wells, water pipes, like bulldozing roads in order to squeeze our communities and to drive us away from here. So what happened is in the 80s, they designated 14 communities of Masafiriyata out of 20 as a firing zone, which is military uh, military area. Like they want, they, they want to take this land for the Israeli occupation forces to do military exercises. But Israeli politician Ariel Sharon at that time wrote in his secret documents that he's designating Masafiriyata as a firing zone area under under a pretext to to take this land for the Israeli settlements. These documents that he wrote in the 80s when he made this first designation, it was released a year ago from now. So from the 80s until the last year, they were trying very hard by putting pressure on the Palestinians of Masafiriyata life in order to make them like leave this land. So they were cutting the water wells, uh, they were like preventing access to electricity, demolishing houses, preventing to giving us permission for building homes. And in, in, uh, in under that, like they want to drive the people away from their homes. And it didn't work, all of, the, all of this pressure, the Palestinians doesn't have any other like place to go. And they would go to the old caves or invade them set up new tents and stay at their homes. Until last year, last May, an Israeli like high court decided to give the green line for the Israeli occupation forces to physically transfer the residents of Masafiriyat and destroy their homes to in order to take this land. And the one that wrote this judgment, the political judgment is, a, is a, himself a settler live in the West Bank near, uh, near Ramallah. 
himself is violating the international law by living in the, in the West Bank, but he's being a judge, a settler judge that wrote the future of 1,300 residents of Masafir Yatan to give the green light for the Israeli occupation forces to drive these people away and to make them homeless in order to take this land. Since that decision in last May until now, it tells you over than 50 house were whipped out by the Israeli occupation forces, which is very crazy. And last November, I stand and document in a village of Sfai here in Masafriyat an early morning, normal morning, while students were having their class, uh, their lessons in their classrooms. As normally, uh, heavily occupation forces arrived at the school with a bulldozer. The soldiers ran directly to the classrooms, slipped the door, slipped the doors and start pushing us back as a journalist and parents. And the first moment one soldier opened uh, the first like stun grenade and throw it at us, when it exploded, the students from the class start to open the windows, crying, taking their books and running away from the, from the school crying and very tra traumatic like scene. I never been in that scene before. It was really horrifying. And then the soldiers just make like a wall around the, the, the school. A group of soldiers went inside the school, steal the bags of the, of, the, of the kids with the balloons, with their chairs, with their tables, and going out, confiscate them and put them in the Israeli military trucks before a, a bulldozer was owned and driven by a sutter who lived in the outpost nearby. In a minutes, just bulldozed this school and leave away. This these students watched their dream being damaged in front of their eyes. There, there, there was just a school that they can be educated in it. And their parents didn't have that chance to have a school and to be educated and none of them like educated. And they had this chance for a while to be educated in this school and they were planning to improve it and to have more class classrooms because it was for a primary uh, primary school and they wanted to improve it. But the Israeli occupation forces arrived and whipped it out. The students with the parents built another tent and the army arrived and take it and confiscate it. Another tent and it was also confiscated by the Israeli occupation forces. So now they continued the year in a room by by one of the villagers that donated to, 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 to the teacher and an old caravan that the water link in, in the winter and the sun heated up in the in the in the summer. So they, they since uh, May uh, until Basel, now. Uh, Basel, I, want, I just wanted to bring in Nora Erekat because we only have a, a, a little bit of time left. Nora, I wanted to ask you the role of the Palestinian Authority uh, while all of this is going on uh, on the West Bank, uh, when these uh, with so many more uh, Palestinians are being displaced and their uh, homes demolished. What has been the role of the Palestinian Authority? Well, unfortunately, Basel can, can, I'm sure, discuss this as well, their, their complete absence in Masafar Yatta to prevent or to protect Palestinians to the extent that they've been armed. They use those arms in order to protect the illegal Israeli settlers, in order to demonstrate that they are the good natives that the U.S. and Israel can trust. Since the establishment of the Oslo Peace Agreement, which is an autonomy arrangement of perpetual subjugation, the Palestinian Authority has become an arm and an extension of the occupation in its policing and its suppression of, of freedom of speech um, in actually tearing apart the fabric of Palestinian social, national, um, political life in order to do what most people in power do, which is to preserve that power. They've not even endorsed BDS 
um, as articulated by the 2005 BDS call, because to them that would undermine their authority to lead their own state to the extent that they have uh, been, you know, uh, where are they in the discussion about insisting that Israel is an apartheid state? They also have been falling uh, behind and using it um, very um, in, in self-interested ways in order to advance themselves um, and their irrelevance, and yet they are not relevant. To the extent that we've seen them, we've seen them actually um, uh, extrajudicially um, assassinate a Palestinian journalist, Nizar Banat, and then come down hard on the Palestinian people who protested that assassination at the height, at the height of Palestinian grassroots and social power internationally in May 2021 um, during the protest against um, the 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 in, uh, impending takeover of Sheikh Jarrah, and so the Palestinian Authority is part of the problem, and it makes the Palestinian condition even more hard, but even more spectacular. That despite all of these obstacles, Palestinians are able, through their grassroots initiatives, through popular media, through film, through art, through organizing um, across the globe, to be able to continue to get this this the story out to be able to continue to articulate a unified vision for the future, a decolonial future, one based on the freedom, dignity, um, and justice for all people, Nora and not Erica, just for a few. I want to thank you so much for being with us, Palestinian human rights attorney, associate professor at Rutgers University, author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, speaking to us from Portugal, and Basil Adra, reporter from Masafayata uh, for Local Call and 972 magazine, will link to your new pieces. I was handcuffed and blindfolded for reporting on settler violence. And your new piece for The Nation magazine, The Destruction of This Palestinian Community, was green-lighted by Israel's Supreme Court. Coming up, Professor John Womack joins us, the legendary historian of the Mexican Revolution, on how to seize and build labor power and solidarity. Stay with us. You can have all the money in your hands, all the possessions anyone can ever have, but it's all worth this treasure. True worth is only measured not by what you got. But what you got in your heart You can have, you can have everything What does it, what does it mean? It all means nothing If you don't stand up for something You can't just talk the talk You got to walk that Stand up for something by Andre Day. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. As we turn now to the workers flexing power across the United States in what some are calling a hot labor summer, actors in SAG-AFTRA have entered their fifth day on strike after the union joined tens of thousands of members of the Writers Guild of America in a combined strike. Meanwhile, the head of the Teamsters has asked the White House not to intervene if some 340,000 unionized UPS workers go on strike without a breakthrough on contract negotiations by the end of the month. This comes as workers at a Waffle House restaurant in Columbia, South Carolina, went on a three-day strike over the weekend to protest low pay and unsafe working conditions they say the companies refuse to address. I've been with 
company 24 years. In this time, I'm only making $16 an hour. I've been through two robberies, and I've had guns in my face in 24 years. I definitely think they could do better than $16 an hour. I'm almost 47 with a herniated disc in my back. You think they're going to get me any mat or anything good to stand on back there on the concrete floor while they work these 17-hour shifts back about? No. I think Waffle House Incorporated could do me better than that. A blood, sweat, and tears for this company over the years. They could do a little bit better than what they've done. 24 years, that's why I'm out here striking today. For more, we're joined by the legendary historian and labor organizer John Womack, one of the foremost historians of the Mexican Revolution, has also written extensively about labor power and strategy, which is the title of his new book. It's featured in The Nation in a piece headlined, What Does It Take to Win a Strike? When Womack was recognized by the Mexico City government for his work in 2009, as it marked the bicentennial of Mexican independence and of the Mexican Revolution. He passed on his award to the Electricians' Union in support of their struggle. At the time, they'd been locked out by the Public Power Agency in Mexico City and surrounding states as they demanded better working conditions. The Washington Post once called John Womack a Marxist historian. He is professor emeritus of Latin American history and economics at Harvard University, where he is joining us now. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Professor Womack. Womack. Why don't you lay out your arguments in this book, and why, as a historian of the Mexican Revolution, for which you are world-renowned, uh, you are now focusing on labor power and strategy. Well, uh, thank you for um, having me on the show. Um, it, uh, I should uh, try to—well, I, I started out working on Mexico, uh, Mexican history. Uh, and not concentrate on the Mexican Revolution. And while doing some research uh, on Mexico City during the Revolution, uh, there were three general strikes in the city of then about 350,000. Um, uh, but crucial in them was the uh, Electoral Workers Union. Um, and I thought, well, this is interesting. Uh, where are they? And it turned, there were there were various places in the city, but the main place was um, a power plant about sixty miles or so north of the city, um, and where there were only about a hundred workers. But when they shut down the power plant, <clears throat> they shut down Mexico City. Uh, I thought, well, that's very interesting. And then uh, and further, uh, there were major railroad strikes in the 1920s. And, um, and but crucial there were was the electrical, was the, um, the mechanical, the me machinist workers uh, um, who um, uh, were in the railroad shops. They weren't on the railroads, but they were in the shops maintaining. Uh, the the trains um, and uh, the telegraphers, the dispatchers, and so and there were five hundred dispatchers across the country could shut down a railroad that employed thirty thousand. So I thought this is very interesting, and I wonder where else is happening. And so from there, I looked at other industries, and then outside Mexico, and it happens anywhere uh, that there is a technical division of labor on a small scale or on an uh, industrial scale. 
um, where a few workers are uh, at bottlenecks or choke points, uh, where if they uh, act, uh, if they stop work, lots of other workers have to stop work. Um, and it's clearest um, in uh, transportation, uh, where it quintessentially um, the crane operators in San Francisco or, or Los Angeles, they can uh, tie up the whole supply chain. Um, but it's not on railroads. Um, the, again, the people that they uh, sending messages are, are crucial. The trains have to run uh, on time um, and quite on time, or they run into each other in their derailments. Um, and so um, that uh, impressed me, but the, it, it goes much further. Um, and uh, it's not only uh, highly skilled people like crane operators or uh, dispatchers, um, uh, but uh, the people in the warehouses, if they don't uh, unload and load uh, uh, the freight, uh, nothing moves. And things block up. Uh, it's choked there at the warehouse. That's how Hoffa built the Teamsters. It wasn't so much uh, from the drivers. Uh, it was the people in the warehouses. Um, but it goes further. Uh, it's, uh, it, uh, it goes into services uh, like um, health care or uh, public schools. Um, the big California uh, school strike uh, this past year um, was, uh, had a major uh, impact on, uh, the, on California's uh, budget, uh, quite aside from the classrooms and everything, uh, but it had a major impact uh, on uh, California's state system. Um, it, uh, and the, uh, the earlier, a few years ago, West Virginia and the Oklahoma uh, teacher strikes, um, that had a major impact uh, on the states where they happened, and and on the on and on the families which uh, need schools if nothing else than to take care of their kids. Uh, quite aside from the education that's, that the teachers are going uh, are giving, um, but um, it's uh, it's not so. It's but and all those are skilled. But uh, there are other uh, choke points um, in buildings um, where uh, if you, in a major office building uh, in any big city or small city for that matter, um, if uh, the janitors don't clean the the building, uh, it's unbearable after a few days. there uh, so uh, and bus drivers. That's uh, a skilled work. But uh, if bus drivers don't uh, serve the public school system, uh, that uh, throws a lot of uh, disturbance uh, into the cities. Um, I it's um, John Womack. Uh, so uh, I wanted to ask you in in terms of this uh, analysis of yours clearly. Uh, capitalists are uh, able to adapt and develop strategies to reduce the power of these workers that are in in key sectors. For instance, in the transportation industry, clearly 
the uh, businesses have gone more and more to independent truckers to prevent precisely the kind of situation being faced now with uh, the Teamsters and the uh, UPS drivers. Uh, what other uh, what areas do you think labor is missing in being able to have this strategic approach to organizing? First, I think your book talks a lot about IT departments uh, within companies and the uh, obviously uh, the tech workers in any uh, company are ki- are critical to that company being able to function. But yet their uh, labor law is weak in the U.S. on this issue. Uh, what are the sectors in society today that you see as critical to an organized labor movement becoming stronger? Uh, well, uh, technical work, uh, of course. Anything that has to do with computers uh, is crucial. Um, and there are all sorts of levels of uh, skill uh, in, uh, in the technical, technically organized uh, industries, Uh, but um, there are still uh, uh, old-fashioned parts of the economy. Um, Automobile parts, for instance, throughout the South, there are a number of uh, plants uh, there that could remake the uh, UAW if uh, they had a, a plan for organ, maybe they do. I don't. It's not clear. Um, but if they had a plan for organizing those automobile parts, uh, that would double the size of the UAW. Um, it. Um, but the in 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 IT, uh, that's uh, it's also uh, maintenance, um, uh, and that is a skill, uh, but, it, and for instance, in robotic, uh, factories, uh, or, uh, in robotic, uh, robotically organized now, uh, warehouses, those machines are, they are machines. They have to be maintained, and the people who are in the shops where they maintain those things, have uh, a crucial uh, 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 power, um, a strategic power. And that's what the the strategic uh, is about. It's about these particular choke points in any industry uh, or in any uh, plant. We're going to talk more about choke points in part two of our conversation. We're talking to John Womack, legendary historian and labor organizer, his new book, Labor, Power and Strategy. Uh, He is professor emeritus of Latin American history and economics at Harvard University. Um, He is the author of The Mexican Revolution and Zapata. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Chirina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grand, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. To see the podcasts of our broadcasts, video and audio, go to democracynow.org. The transcripts are there as well. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.